Christmas truth, making spirits bright. Today's text is from Micah. We should all bow in prayer, pray the Lord helps you to find the book of Micah in your Old Testament. Micah, look it up in the table of contents, chapter 5, six verses that we're going to read together. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. The promise of Christmas that turned Herod into a murderer. Micah 5, 1 to 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origin is of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor was given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Stay with the text. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd in the land of Assyria with the sword in the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. What a text. And parts of it sound Christmassy, and other parts we just think, what in the world is that about? I think we can all admit that. It's a passage that's so obscure. A lot of you had to look up Micah in the table of contents. But, but the scholars just prior to Jesus' birth. This is important. The scholars, just prior to Jesus' birth, they knew these verses very well. Here's something I want you to notice. Matthew tells us King Herod had these very words, the ones we just read. Turn back the clock. Matthew tells us that King Herod had these very words quoted to him. And they filled his heart with fear and trepidation. That's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. We know about the wise men. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Something's happened. The wise men know about it. For we saw his star, there's the Christmas story, when it rose, they followed the star, right? And we have come to worship him. 
So they're saying this to Herod, the wise men from the east. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And then it says, I'm going to explain this, all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, that's, that's what's meant by all Jerusalem. Not every person in Jerusalem, but all the leadership, all the scholars, all the rulers, all the scribes. He got everybody together, a meeting. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, that's the Messiah, where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, that's Micah, and now he's going to hear the words from these leaders that you and I just read and wondered, what are they all about? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And they quote, this is significant, they partially quote, and if you look carefully, they partially misquote. I want to talk about that in a minute. They partially misquote the prophet Micah when they say, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Did you notice the difference? Micah said, you who are least. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So the wise men from the east, they're familiar with this text because they had been studying it. They knew that that baby Jesus, they call him the Messiah. Baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem, described as the promised Messiah. So they had also been studying, obviously, Jeremiah's description of that star. Jeremiah prophesied a star would lead them they knew about that prophecy because they tell Herod, we've been following the star, the one Jeremiah talked about. It's a fascinating account. So in short, they saw what many people saw in those days and what a lot of people miss in these days. That everything with the birth of Jesus was fitting in perfectly with all of the promises from the prophets. One of the things that made this prophecy so unlikely was the fact that neither Mary nor Joseph lived in Bethlehem, where Micah said the Messiah would be born. Joseph had to go there because it was the place of his birth. He may not have lived there since he was born. Mary was living in Nazareth when she became pregnant, and she was in no condition really to travel anywhere. And so that is why truths that we're so familiar with, they don't startle us anymore. God saw to it that all the might and muscle of the powers that be in Rome, God saw to it that they all did his exact bidding in calling for a census that would bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Note, distance, circumstances, Obstacles and pandemics are not a threat to the creative, sovereign power 
of our Creator God. So let, let that wonderful old story just pound something freshly into your soul. Maybe you need to hear it this morning. Every Christmas, we celebrate not only the fact of Christ's birth, but the way in which God miraculously brought it about. God moves stars, Jeremiah said. Galaxies. Along with earthly rulers, leaders, governors, empires. There is absolutely, there was nothing likely of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Everything seemed against that even being possible. And I think we're meant to learn something from the way God brought it about. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but I have a feeling that more happened than we read about in his brief account. I don't believe for a moment that Herod just listened to these wise men make their speech and then move on. I think Herod took out some scrolls, blew the dust off them, looked at ancient manuscripts, and he saw some things that turned his hard heart into butter. But it's not just the power of God and the greatness of God that shines in this account, and here's how I want to proceed. Don't be shocked, point number one. Micah's prophecy tells us not to allow the smallness of the birthplace to cause us to miss the greatness of the birth. So, so God's greatness and might don't mean that he's distant or aloof or uncaring. He's, he's magnificently condescending. You see that in Micah's prophecy, which the wise men twist. But here's what Micah said. Micah 5, 2, And you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which means fruitful, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, that's this little one. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Just, just look at that first phrase for now. Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans. of. I mean, she was technically, but of no account. Too small to count. She didn't. She didn't merit this divine visitation in any way. There was nothing about Bethlehem that could attract such an event. It wasn't like Jerusalem. There was nothing about Bethlehem that could ever have deserved this blessing or merited it in any way. I believe we're supposed to learn something about our God from the birth of his son. I mean, Micah's prophecy, and this is, these are the hard parts of the text to get our heads around in a Sunday morning teaching time. But his prophecy, it paints very big events. That's what makes it hard to digest. Big events, broad strokes in six verses. Not a lot of details are given. He warns, he warns of God's coming judgment on Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. That's in that first verse. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The Assyrians are coming. They're going to judge. God's people, Israel, are on the brink of 
terrifying times, as Micah starts his prophecy. And then he says, after God will come and he will again restore his people. That's what that third verse is about. The rest of the brothers shall return. Okay, so we're leaping ahead years here. But again, no details are given. Just, it's kind of just a fast forwarding through the still unfolded pages of Israel's history. And then suddenly, in the middle of all these broad, fast strokes, there's a detail that's just dropped into the middle of it. Verse 2, Bethlehem, out of you. Assyria, Israel, judgment, restoration. Bethlehem out of you. You see how it's just, now we're zeroing in. Out of you, one will come forth. Verse 2. In the middle of all this, out of you, one will come forth. And I think there are two reasons for this detail. We'll look at the second reason in the next point. But the first lesson the one that was missed by the wise men when they misquote this text to Herod, is that the smallness of Bethlehem will show all who observe it, right to this day, the pattern of how God's saving grace still reaches into all of our lives. Both in converting us and in keeping us, Maybe you've followed Jesus for 90 years. The pattern of God's grace, we're meant to see it. The least, the unqualified, the undeserving. Bethlehem, to you, I'm coming. I hope I can make you see it. There are people sitting in this sanctuary this morning. There are people watching this live stream who, who need God's help and grace and pardon desperately, but won't turn to him because they feel unworthy. They feel they don't qualify. And those people need to know Micah's prophecy about Bethlehem. I come to the least. They need to know that Christmas is all about glory to God, not glory to us. And so Bethlehem, look at the pattern. Bethlehem establishes the same pattern as the stable and the manger. None of them attracts attention to themselves. It isn't about them. It's about God's condescension. It's about God's reach. This is the message we need, isn't it? In the middle of everything that we're in, Santa may know who's naughty or nice and give his gifts to the nice. The problem is when we all look into the depths of our hearts, that system will always leave every one of us out in the cold. How typical of man-made systems, that silly little jingle. How typical of man-made religious systems. How contrary, how contrary to the coming of God in all of his might and redeeming splendor. Where am I going to come? How will I land in this world? Let's find the least. Let's find the least deserving Let's find the unnoticed there. That's where I'm coming. I said there was a second reason for Christ's birth at Bethlehem. Point number two. Micah's prophecy about Christ's birth at Bethlehem ties Christ's salvation 
with the promises of God. One of the, one of the mightiest promises, I, I would almost guarantee, I was going to say bet, I guess the pastor shouldn't say that, guarantee that there's a text that almost none of us have read regularly, and it's one of the great promises of the coming of Christ into this world. It's a strange text. You should look this one up, if at all possible, at home or here in the sanctuary. I'd like you to look up 2 Samuel 7 and look at verses 12 to 16. So again, the second point is what we learn about Micah's prophecy is that it's a, it's a promised event. God keeps his word in sending Jesus. 2 Samuel 7 12 to 16. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, you will lie down with your father. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from, he shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Look at this. This is important. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we're all thinking, oh, there, that's about Jesus. And and it is, but there's more. 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And then these words, which seem to mess everything up. And when he commits iniquity... Did Jesus commit iniquity? We've got a problem here. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, look, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established again forever. These are tricky verses. So there's a promise made regarding King David's reign. He is told that the establishment of his throne will continue long after his death. Forever is mentioned at least twice, in some translations, three times. The problem is, no one person seems to fulfill all the conditions of this verse. We know that the one to whom the promise refers will be a person who commits sin because God says, 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man. So there's a very human side presented here. And yet... The promises don't seem to apply to merely a human being because it also says David's successor will have an eternal dimension to his reign. 16, your throne shall be established forever. So where are we going to go with this? It's one of the many prophecies that has a double fulfillment. Of course, the descendant of David to which some of this promise refers, it refers to Solomon. David's natural son. It would come from his own body, like the text said. He would come after David, 
And we all know the story. He would build a house for the Lord, this physical temple. And we know Solomon would sin. He did. Then God would discipline him. But Solomon wouldn't establish David's throne forever. There would be, there would be another king, another fulfillment out of the lineage of David who would establish David's house, the text says, in a different eternal sense. So this is really what 2 Samuel 7 is all about. David won't be the one to build a physical house for the Lord. Too much warfare, too much bloodshed, God said. Another, Solomon, would come after him. And part of the reason God wanted David, especially David, to understand his pivotal role in the coming of the Messiah, God says to David, listen, David, you, you aren't the one to build a house unto my name. And I don't want you to confuse what this promise is about. The issue isn't you building a house for me. The issue you need to understand is I am going to build a house out of you, your lineage. That's what scared Herod to death. Everyone knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because he would be of the house and lineage of David. He would be David's offspring. Bethlehem was the sign that Herod saw. Bethlehem was the sign that God keeps his promises. And the amazing thing about Micah's prophecy is he asserts, listen, he asserts God's promise and God's covenant and God's faithfulness, not when Israel was in a period of spiritual and political might and ascension, but when they were facing physical oblivion from the Assyrians. That's what Micah's prophecy is all about. It will be 700 years Micah's prophecy, and then 700 years before the, the light of hope will go on in Bethlehem. Micah won't be around to see it. Some people have faith to treat God's future promises just like they are present reality. God bless people like that. God bless people who don't have to eat the apples in order to plant an orchard. Herod's heart is scared. His heart is scared because he knows if this is what he thinks it is, if this is God's Messiah, God's promised Messiah, then he can't be stopped. Go ahead, kill all the infants under two. That's what he tries. Pretty desperate means, wouldn't you agree? He can't be stopped. Bethlehem means God keeps his word. Bethlehem means God fulfills his plans. And this Christmas account means that's how God works in all of our lives. He's always faithful. When it doesn't look like it, he's faithful. When it's delayed, it's faithful. When there are obstacles, he's faithful. Three. 
We're almost done. Micah's prophecy means Christ will shepherd his people and usher in a kingdom of everlasting peace and everlasting righteousness. It's in four and the first part of verse five. I like this. He shall stand, shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure. They're going to be judged by Assyria, but they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great. Where? Well, to the ends of the earth. This one is going to be great to the ends of the earth. He's going to be great in Iran and Iraq and China and Canada and the U.S. And anywhere you can name where it looks like there couldn't possibly be a ghost of a chance like Bethlehem. He shall be great over all the earth. And he shall be their peace. What a pleasure to wrap up reading these words at this Christmas season. Re receive them, receive them with a prayerful heart of faith. These are strong, irreversible words of promise. They will come to pass, and they will come to pass in fuller ways than anyone in this room or anyone watching can even imagine right now. We can't picture it. Here are the steps. I'm gonna go fast. Messiah, it says, will shepherd his flock. Isn't it interesting? Out of the lineage of David, we're meant to think of David caring for his sheep, and one out of the house of David will give the same care and protection over his flock. Ultimately, no need will go unmet. Ultimately, I said, no need will go unmet. Messiah will do everything he does in the strength of the Lord. I have a problem. You have a problem. I have so many good intentions that I can't fulfill. Anybody else have that problem? I have plans when we have things go wrong in the house and I have these intentions that I can fix them. And I start, and I, and I have good intentions, and then I end up, I phone Mike Howe or Mark Weston and I say, I've really screwed things up here. I don't even think it's repairable anymore. I can't do it. I'd like to. I can't. There's this big gap in all of us, and those are little things, but even in bigger things, there's this big gap between our wishes and our ability. But, but, but the one born in Bethlehem has no such discrepancy. Whatever he wills, he accomplishes. He will do everything he does, notice, in the strength of the Lord. No one, no one will stand against his will. No one will fight against his peace. Three, it says he will be great to the ends of the earth. I've already talked about it. This won't be some parochial tribal deity. His rule won't be limited to the Jewish people. He will not be one among many objects of worship. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. 
he will be Lord. The Bible says the whole earth will be filled with his glory. We will see that happen. As surely as the babe was born in Bethlehem, the earth will be filled with his glory. Mark it well, church. Mark it well. The day is fast coming when we will see the fulfillment of a Christmas carol that we all just sing, however pleasantly, we all just sing in faith right now. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The Messiah, the one Micah prophesied about, the one born in that little town of Bethlehem, still has a lot of work to do. It's not done. But that work is firm and it is certain, and all of those blessings are for those who love him and his future work. Where meek souls will receive him still, we sing it, the dear Christ enters in. Let the one born in Bethlehem that scared power-hungry Herod to death let him enter your heart, your life, if you've never done it before, with his redeeming love, mercy, and grace. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, for the truth of your word. We are so grateful for the promise, the child born in Bethlehem. He will be great to the ends of the earth. Thank you that you come to the least, the smallest, the most hopeless, the most undeserving. And you shepherd with your love. You pardon with your mercy. You give hope for eternal life. Accept our praise and our thankful worship, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.